I so appreciate all of the music today and putting our hearts, minds, and helping them to focus on the Lord, the kingdom, love, and obedience surely are nuances of what we have been studying in the Word regarding Christian liberty. Believe it or not, this is going to be the last sermon on Christian liberty. Some of you have been anticipating me saying that in regard to the book of Acts. But that's going to be a long time coming before we say that. Next week, we will be back in Acts, Acts chapter 15, the last five or six verses. You may read that before next Sunday to familiarize yourself with it. And we look forward to digging back in Acts. Some great, great chapters coming up, scriptures that we'll look in together. But today will be part four on Christian liberty. We'll finish up our July sermon series. Remember where this came from? It sprung out of studying the book of Acts, chapter 15 of the Jerusalem Council, and what the decision of the council was, uh, probably the most important council ever to, to meet because of the reminder that we are saved by grace through faith alone, in Christ alone. But James said there are some other things that I want to remind you of as a believer in that particular day in the first century that they should take in consideration as Jews and Gentiles and how they should live and treat one another. And ethical decision making, ethical decision making in the 21st century is confronted with new and diverse challenges every single day. In the culture we live in, the decisions we make, So a radically biblical perspective is needed today more than ever in the history of the world. What is needed is what Don Carson calls a world Christian. Are you familiar with that term? Now, we don't like the term worldly Christian. That's not a good thing, right? Because 1 John reminds us that if you love God, you'll hate the world. That system that stands against the Lord. But Don Carson's term, world Christian, what does that mean? Well, first, it means that our allegiance to Jesus Christ and His kingdom is self-consciously set above national, cultural, linguistic, and racial allegiances. The most important thing about us is the fact that we belong to Jesus. Right? Second, our commitment to the church, which we might call Jesus' messianic community, is to the church everywhere. Wherever the church is truly manifest, and not just here on our own turf, right, but all around the world. Third, we see ourselves first and foremost as citizens of the heavenly kingdom, and therefore we consider all other citizenship a secondary matter, even if you're an American. Our citizenship to heaven is more important than being an American. And finally, as a result, we have a single-minded and sacrificial attitude when it comes to that paramount mandate to make disciples in all the world. So a world Christian will recognize that we are citizens of a different kind of nation. We are citizens of a different kind of kingdom and a different kind of community. And yet, we also recognize that we live in a world that is lost, hurting. We're around lost people every single day. And we need to be reminded that we are divine representatives to call men and women all over this world to come to the kingdom of light. 
in the Lord Jesus Christ by presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, what do we need in our culture? Well, we need, we need wisdom, but we also need winsomeness. We need conviction, but we also need compassion. So we need to put our feet firmly planted in the Word of God and also keep a watchful, discerning eye on the culture that we live in. That's the call of God for everybody in here. Now, how does that relate to Christian liberty? In so many ways, it does. Why? Because we have a responsibility as divine representatives of the Lord to make an impact on the community. And if we're not practicing our Christian liberty with the right understanding, then we'll be fighting inside of the church and we'll never be able to make an impact in the world. Thus, Jesus said this in John 13, 34, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. Now listen to this. By this they will know that you are my disciples because you have love for one another. You see how vital that is? That's called the mark of discipleship. That the world may know that we belong to Jesus because of the way we love one another. That is so vitally important. So, for the last three Sundays leading up to this one, we've talked about the implications of Christian liberty. Where is it rooted? It's rooted in the fact that for freedom, you've been set free. I love, again, the NLT says, So Christ has really set us free. Now make sure you stay free. And don't get tied up again in the slavery to the law. And we know what that means to be set free. Galatians 3, just listen. The Bible says, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. In other words, if you think you can be saved by the law then you've got to live by every one of them. Guess what? You can't do it. The one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged upon a tree. So Christ, Jesus, in Him the blessing has come to us so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Aren't you so thankful that you have freedom in Christ? That you're not bound under the curse of the law. That you're not bound in the chains of sin. And there's only one way that can be removed. And that's through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. There is no other way to go to heaven. There is no other way to be forgiven. The atomic bomb in that verse is that we dwell under the curse and the bondage of sin. But thank the Lord God Almighty that Jesus Christ became that curse for us. So here's the deal. When you think of Christian freedom, that's the first thing that should come to your mind. I am, Jesus Christ set me free from the law of sin and death. I am on my way to heaven. My sins are forgiven. What an awesome thing. The first thing you should think about is not can I have white wine with fish and red wine with meat. The first thing that should come into your mind with Christian liberty is I have been set free through Jesus Christ my Lord. And then we learned to stand in that freedom you have. Galatians 5.1 and then we talked about that call. Since you have, been, you have been called to freedom. But then that freedom comes with a warning. Do not use your freedom or liberty for an indulgence of the flesh. See, it would be real easy. Remember all those Corinthian slogans? All things are lawful. Well, it would be very easy for you to say, I've got this liberty. But the questions we have to ask are many. 
We looked at them last week. Is this really a Christian liberty? Can, do you have it? Is it taught directly, indirectly, implicitly, explicit from the Word? Is it in fact a liberty for you at all? Yes, you've been set free in Christ, but is this particular liberty? And you may say, yes, this is a liberty from the Word. But the question then begins to be, will this liberty bring me under bondage? So you can't just stop with, can I do the liberty, but will it bring me under bondage? And then thirdly, does it bother my conscience? Paul talks a lot about that. Do not defy your conscience. Now your conscience can be off and skewed, but as a general rule, if you've got a troubled conscience, you better put on the brakes. Okay? And then he says, does it help me and honor God, or is it harmful, and does it dishonor God? Those are good questions to filter through your Christian liberty decisions. And then finally, and most importantly, how does this affect my brother and sister in Christ? And we plowed through all of that. And so today, I just want to give you really one point supported by a couple of other points as implications from all that we studied in Christian liberty. And when we consider Romans 14, Romans 15, Galatians 5, 1 Corinthians 6, part of it, and then 8, 9, and 10, Paul's number one concern seems to be how what I do affects others. So therefore, in the body of Christ, is that not important? How does what I do in the realm of Christian liberty, how does it affect others around me? And today, we want to deal with that particular application. With all that said, Romans 14. I did all of that for the people who were not here last week. Okay, Romans 14. Let's read verses 1 through 12. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the other weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, And he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. In other words, we have one master. And that's Jesus Christ. And everything you do in life, in in the realm of Christian liberty, we're not talking about those things that are totally forthright, given in the scripture that should be things you don't do, right? We know that, that are taught. We're talking about liberty. Verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, and abstains in honor of the Lord, and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end... Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Man, that's big, isn't it? I mean, in this church body, uh, we're going to categorize, we're going to talk about the different categories of weak and strong. Just think about that for a moment. You belong to the Lord 
And for everybody in this building, if you're a Christian and you can be categorized as weak or strong, here's a word from God to you. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. We're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account of every deed done in the flesh, good or bad. Verse 12, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. All right. Now, this application is going to be a little bit hairy and difficult and maybe disconcerting to some of you because we run into a quick problem on the surface as we begin to try to unravel what this text is talking about in regard to strong and weak. Right up front, the designations of strong and weak cause us to get a little bit nervous. So, the weak frequently identify themselves as being strong. Did y'all know that? Because a natural tendency especially in Baptist life, is to say, well, I am strong in the faith because there are so many things that I abstain from. Well, we're good for that, aren't we? And the weak uh, frequently identify themselves as being strong. So this makes it somewhat difficult to put some of these things into practice. So, because right up front, we have to do a full evaluation of who we are in Christ and our position before Him and the practice of how we use our Christian liberty. It is clear from Romans 14 that the strong are the ones who actually are using their liberty. Y'all see that in the text? They're the non-abstainers. So they are actually partaking, whether it's eating meat or, or drinking wine, whatever that may be, they're the ones that are the strong here. The weak are the ones who don't understand their liberty or for the purpose of conscience... Right? Abstain from a certain liberty. The strong are the ones who use their liberty, and the weak are the ones, in Paul's terminology, who will abstain. Now, here's the deal. When it comes to those designations of strong and weak, you've got to ask the question, or state the obvious, right? Well, we all want to be strong, right? Not so fast. No one wants to be weak because of our terminology in our day of what it means to be weak. Here's the obvious thing. Paul does not use either term negatively. Did y'all read 14 or just listen? You, you do know what's going on here. There's nothing spiritually deficient about the weak. Nothing. If so, don't you think Paul would have attempted to tell us to move the weak position over to the strong? But he doesn't do that. There's nothing wrong with being identified as the weaker brother, although... In our terms, it's not too flattering to say, uh, how you doing, weaker brother? That's not too flattering. But I want you to know that uh, another complication, not only just the designation of weak and strong, but it's also complicated uh, because these are not absolute categories. So what do I mean by that? Well, believers may have some areas that you could be categorized as strong, but you've got other areas that you could be categorized as weak. I guess it's safest to say that there's a mixture with all of us. There's definitely that in all of us. So, but here's the most important thing. Those who are strong and weak in the practice of Christian liberty are not to judge one another. That's what's unequivocally clear in the word. The strong and the weak equally belong to Jesus. Did y'all see that in 14? Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master. And if you're saved today, I hope and pray that you know that you belong to only one master. And so in that regard, we can't judge one another. Christ is the master of both the weak and the strong. Paul's instruction 
is for us not to judge one another. So now you are actually in point one of the sermon. Aren't you thankful? And that point is, in the practice of Christian liberty, do not judge one another. Now, everybody's going to say, Preacher, we all know that it's not right to judge one another. Well, don't be so fast, again, because the weak have a tendency to identify all the things that they abstain from in Christian living, and they don't identify them as weak and, I mean, as gray areas. They identify them black and white, so therefore, if anybody considered strong does these things that they, they don't identify with, they say, You're a sinner. We do that, right? If they can't find a verse to use, they'll always go back to the quintessential sin sniffer verse. You know which one that is? 1 Thessalonians 5.22, where it says, avoid all the appearance of evil. If it's got even the, a little bit of the appearance of evil, anathema, taboo, right? Here's the deal. In the KJV, appearance is not a good translation. The best translation is forms of evil. See, and the context of that happens to be false doctrine. You flee the appearance of the, you flee the form of false doctrine. Now, I know that can spread a little bit further, but in other words, we need to understand that it can't be a catch-all phrase with us. And you can't say that just because you, have, you think, oh, this has got the appearance of evil. So the weak have a tendency to believe that everything they refrain from is actually a sin. That is the tendency sometimes. In turn, they look at the strong as sinful and carnal and trite. And here's the big one. They can't be as serious about the things of God as we are. You've got to be kidding me. They can't be loving Jesus if they do these things. Right? They don't love Jesus in the gospel like we do. Some of you are looking at me because you know you're guilty. Right? Well, folks, I want to tell you this is wrong. And it happens among us more than we think. Some of us abstain from a certain liberty, and then you find out someone does not abstain from it, and you're like, whew, you look on them with disdain. And that's what Paul is referring to. You can't do this. They're, we come away saying they're just not as serious as a gospel, about the gospel as we are. And that's a sin, folks, if you judge people that way. Now, what do the strong have the tendency to do? Well, they have a tendency to look at the weak with contempt, contempt because of their religious scruples. The strong will want to wrongly bring the weak along to their position so that they can enjoy their liberty around that person. And, and you will look down on people if you're not careful and think that they're petty-minded and a bigoted legalist. It's equally wrong to do that, strong people. Equally wrong. So I think the weak and the strong should be relieved to read uh, that and relieve some of the frustration. Why? Because the task of living in this church as a strong or a weak person in those designations is not to form someone else into your own image. The goal of sanctification this side of heaven is to come to be more like Jesus. That's the goal. You have but one master that you belong to. Uh, I'm not trying to conform you to my views of liberty and bring you out of your position. That's not godly. The goal is for us to not judge one another. You may be here today and uh, you're a strong or a weak. You may be 60, 40, 10, 90, 90, 10, either way. 
But your goal is not to have someone give in to your way uh, of viewing uh, Christian liberty. In the issue of uh, do you abstain or are you a partaker or whatever that may be. This is our ethic and related to one another. Now unless we grasp this, uh, we're going to have negative attitudes that swell inside of the church toward others. That you don't think are doing the things that you do. Or they like things you don't like. Whatever that may be. Paul says that we have to respect one another. We have to love one another. If your view is not shared by someone, you're not allowed, according to the Scripture, to pass judgment on that individual. And if your liberties are not engaged by someone, your job is not to judge them or to seek to make them into your own image. Y'all getting this? It's outside of Christian conduct to try to form someone into your image. Again, we have but one master, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. We stand before Him, not the liberties of another. You're going to stand before the King one day. Did y'all hear that verse? And you're going to give an account. There's a day, there's a reckoning day coming. We're going to stand before Him. With all your religious scruples or lack of them, you're going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. The goal of salvation for a believer is to be conformed to the image of the Son of God. Here's what I want you to see. There's an inherent difficulty in applying these principles. Are you thinking? Are your wheels turning? At least a little bit. Now, how do you apply all of that in the realm of a church body? Not to be judgmental, to decide what is a Christian liberty and what's not, to know if this is going to keep get me into bondage. Uh, you know, you think about that in the use of, we can use case study after case study, can we not? How do we use, how does it work out? Do you understand how profound the application is of this particular understanding of Christian liberty? Can you see why the overall principle boils down to not judging one another? Right? We've all been redeemed from underneath the curse of the law. We've been set free from this evil world. And we belong to Jesus Christ. Isn't that awesome? We do. But this does not mean that it is simple to understand how all of these aspects of Christian liberty work out within the church. How does it work out in the body of believers? There's actually a fundamental tension that's taught in the Word of God regarding law and freedom. Do y'all know this? Uh, Paul talks about this. He recognizes the, temp- the tension. James calls the moral law of God perfect liberty. Now, how can you say that? So there's tension there. James calls that. Paul wrestles with the fact that although he is free from all men, that that freedom uh, is curtailed in many circumstances for the glory of the gospel. Right? You remember we talked about Titus and his response. Then we talked about Timothy and his response and what God asked of him. Paul said, I lived among the Jews as a Jew. But I also lived among the Gentiles as a Gentile. Meaning that there's many things that he would have thought was a liberty, but knew full well he would not do this. Why? Because he would offend his brothers. So there's a fundamental tension. Inherit. Uh, These are not black and white issues that play out so easily. We've got to have some discernment, folks. Right? We've got to have some insight. We've got to think biblically. I started this off by saying we need to keep our feet in the Scriptures. We need to know what the Word of God says. We're not bound by human rules and regulations. But we're also called by God to love and serve. And to operate in that realm. 
We're called to love and to serve. We need wisdom to be able to live in the church body and make an impact in this world. We need to ask questions like, am I doing this liberty just to please self? It's huge. When we live in a society that does everything to please self. It's so easy for that to trickle over into the church. And our attitude be one of, well, the church is all about me. This freedom thing is all about me, so I can do what I want to do. This, my friends, is not what Paul would ask us to do. Verse, chapter 15, verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. The Bible says you have an obligation. That means you're supposed to do something. Did y'all get that? In regard to liberty. So we are not talking about caving into the fear of men. We're called by God to love and serve others. Will the, will the issue of your liberty create strife? If so, there needs to be a decision that is made. And I think that decision is give it up. If it causes strife. Is it going to tear someone down? Will it work out in such a way that it ensnares someone and brings them back to what their life was before they met Christ? Remember, what, remember us going through that? We talked about how that if you're dealing with someone that ate meat sacrificed to idols and an abstainer says, I can't eat that meat sacrificed to an idol, why, why, did he, why would you have to be careful? Because you'll violate his conscience. But the bigger picture is when he went and ate that meat, or when he, went, when he was lost and went in and ate that meat, it was centered around probably uh, getting drunk, going by the temple pr- prostitute, and doing that kind of prostitution himself. So if he came to know Christ and you were eating meat that was sacrificed to an idol, what's going to come flooding back on his life? All of those temptations that he lived for before he met Jesus. That's what it really means to cause someone to stumble. It's not just to say... I don't like something about the fact that you got a beard on your face, right? Got too much hair on your face, right? Has nothing to do with that. It has to do with what kind of background they came from. Now, can I do a case study for you to tell you how this works out? We got time, don't we? Let's talk about women wearing dresses to church on Sunday. All right? Good place to start. By the way, ladies, when it comes to your dress... Two things I would say. Wisdom and witness. Wisdom and witness. I say the same thing about alcohol. I'm a teetotaler. I'm a full abstainer. Why? Because of wisdom and witness. We talked about that last week. Would I ever refuse someone to join our church that drinks in moderation? Absolutely not. If you're a drunk, you may get kicked out. I'm just telling you. Right? That's Bible. Uh, you may be out of the church if, we, if you find out, we find out that you're drunk and you're stumbling around town. You know, the scripture talks about that. But when it comes to me, there's something called wisdom and witness. And since I did say something, that's not what I'm talking about when I get on the women wearing dresses, dressing, wearing dresses. But I am reminding you, even in our church life, I don't care if you're 12 years old, ladies, that wisdom and witness needs to win out on the way you dress. Because you're affecting the men in this church. That was free. All right? Now, let's say that there is a woman who wears a dress to church 
every Sunday morning. And they're beautiful, elegant dresses. And that's her right. She wears them on Sunday. In fact, it's her conviction that she ought to wear a dress to church every Sunday. So in the course of time, she begins to teach a young lady's Bible class. And she wants to teach young ladies to be rock-solid, godly girls. So she tells them, you know, ladies, the Bible forbids women from dressing like a man. Is that true, by the way? It is true. Right? There is a reference in the Old Testament about that. And so therefore, young ladies, you must wear a dress to church. This is what she begins to teach her class. When she sees the following Sunday that some of the women did not wear dresses to church, she explains to them at the next class that if you really love Jesus, and if you're really saved, you'll want to please Christ, right? And if you want to please Him, then that means you should wear a dress and not pants. So at the end, the result is truly that if you're saved, you'll wear, you'll wear a dress to church every Sunday. Now... This little example can help us navigate through the issues of Christian liberty, right? Now look, as long as Mrs. So-and-so's conviction about wearing a dress is her own conviction, that is perfectly okay. Y'all want to agree with that? This, way, this lady wears lovely dresses to church every week, and that's fine. The dresses actually look very ladylike, and it's her personal conviction, and it is a-okay. And for some of you who want to go on a mission... To help her wear pants, you're wrong. Right? You would be wrong to say that to her. If she really understood her liberty in Jesus, she'd realize how much more comfortable pants are, and she'd stop wearing them long dresses. Right? If you do that, you're a sinner. If you've got that judgmental attitude, you are crossing the line, and you are judging according to the text. Now, does anyone need to tell her that she's free to wear pants? Miss so-and-so, do you realize that you, you, you could go to Walmart and buy some pants? You don't have to wear dresses to church. Well, as long as that's her personal conviction, you need not say anything. That's her personal conviction. However, if she says to the ladies that the Bible says this regarding dressing, dresses, then she's violating Romans 14. And then, if she goes on to say... Uh, if you are saved, you're going to wear a dress. Then she's violating the very gospel itself. Y'all see how this works? So, in her statement, she's undermining the gospel of grace. Because anytime you say it takes X, Y, Z, according to the Bible, to be saved, and X, Y, Z is not in the Bible, guess what? You are undermining the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because you're saved by grace through faith, not X, Y, and Z. That you put on there, okay? So, at that moment, this teacher is really a Judaizer. Is she not? Because we teach and believe the Bible says that gospel math is this. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Right? But she says Jesus plus, 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 plus equals salvation. That's not true. We're saved by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. So this is how serious the issue can be. The moment you attach your taboos to what you think it means to be a Christian, then you're in danger of denying the gospel of grace itself. So let's conclude this time together by categorizing our brothers and sisters in the Lord. When you look at this passage, you come away with at least four potential categories of believers. Are you all ready for them? It's going to be real fast. First, you've got the convinced, weaker brother. You know, Paul starts off in the terminology in Romans 14 talking about if you are convinced... 
And I get that from Romans 14, 5 through 6. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. This is the one who abstains and is convinced he should not eat anything but vegetables. Y'all see that in the passage? I mean, they're very well. And I mean, we can make some arguments today with all the steroids in the chickens. Right? But you got steroids in the veggies too. Unless you grow them at your home. I mean, we can make all kind of arguments here or there, but this person actually believes in his mind, and he's convinced that he honors God best by abstaining from meat and only eating vegetables. And we could, we could say this about a plethora of things. We're not just limited to vegetables here. He's convinced that his conviction, it is his conviction, he's living by it, and he believes he's pleasing God through it. Just like the woman who may come to church on Sunday morning and wear a dress. As long as she doesn't tell you, you've got to wear a dress in order to be saved. Right? That's the convinced weaker brother. Again, there could be some mixture in here. On certain areas, you may be classified as the weaker brother. In other areas, you may be the strong. Here's the second category, the convinced stronger brother. This is the one that has the liberty to eat meat and drink wine and does so unto the Lord. He does it without an, un, an untroubled conscience, and he does it by faith. He's convinced that his liberty is something that was bought for him and purchased through the Lord Jesus Christ, and he does so with a clear conscience. So Paul is teaching, for the convinced weaker brother and the convinced stronger brother, let them both stand in their conviction without judging one another, period. If you would consider yourself weaker brother, convinced. Stronger brother in this area of liberty, convinced. Then don't judge one another. I know there's a lot of applications on that, remember? Does it enslave you? Does it bring you under bondage? How does it affect your brother? Do you cause someone to stumble? I know this is not the end of all things, but still, you've got the categories for a reason. Convinced weaker brother, convinced stronger brother. What about the confused, unlearned, weaker brother? This is what we saw in 1 Corinthians 8. When the guy is caused to stumble because of the decision of someone to eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols. His conviction was that he should not eat meat sacrificed to idols. But he sees his brother eating that meat and he's tempted. And if he eats that meat, he's going to violate his conscience. And Paul said to him, that would be a sin. So this brother does not have all the moral issues sorted out in his mind, in his lifestyle. And he doesn't know exactly what to do. What is the responsibility of the stronger one to do at this point? The goal is to move him over to the knowledge you have. Right? No, that's not what you're called to do at all. Uh, the goal is that you consider a weaker brother and you don't partake of it because you know it's going to make him stumble. And Jesus Christ said you offend him if you do it. Not just the weaker brother, but Christ. Y'all remember reading that? We don't want that to happen. So it is very easy for us to try to proselyte someone to our own image. But the Bible says no. We need to be quick to relinquish whatever liberty that is for the sake of the soul of someone else. Got to love one another, right? In that realm, serve one another. Fourth, we have the Judaizer. Uh, this is the one who has whatever religious scruple in their mind, and they believe that that's what constitutes being a Christian. Just like the case study with Our Lady, who began to teach in Sunday school that if you're saved, you ought to wear a dress to church. Well, that's her religious scruple, and she's a Judaizer. If she presses that on someone else. The minute someone says, a real Christian, don't do this or that, but there's no biblical warrant to what that this or that is, then you are undermining the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
That's Paul's teaching. We all have principles that govern our lives, and we should. Aren't you thankful that we're not all cookie-cutter Christians? There's diversity among the body. We're not all the same. I'm a southern boy. There's different religious scruples that we have down south that y'all don't have in the Midwest. But my goal should not be to help you know what my scruples are and bring you over to my image. That's not the goal. Just be careful not to deny the gospel that we uphold. And it's real easy to do that when we are so concentrated on what we do, whether it's the right to do it or it's bashing someone when it's a liberty and they actually do it. We need to keep Christ's redemptive work at the center of all of our thoughts. What Jesus did for us. Now, question, am I keeping slavery to Christ and the gospel in focus? That's a bigger question, isn't it? I mean, we think about Christian liberty and we say, well, that means I can drink this or eat this or do this. Well, my question to you would be this. How much time are you actually spending engaging this world for Christ? I used to say this principle. I used to say, I don't know a lot of people who are in bondage to alcohol that are making an impact for Jesus in the world. I still believe that. If you're, under, if you're in bondage and you've got to have that drink once or twice a week, two or three times a week, can't live without it, you're in bondage. How much time are you spending making an impact for the kingdom of Christ in this world that we live in? That's a good question, isn't it? See, it's not just, you do understand that when you're saved by grace through faith, it is freedom to obey. Folks, you couldn't obey before. Are y'all listening to me? When you're talking about Christian liberty, aren't you thankful to God that you're free to obey? That your obedience to Jesus is king and it's, it's inside of you. It's not written on tablets made of stone anymore. But God infused them into your heart and life. And these things are in your mind. And you saturate your mind with the things of God. And then you begin to make decisions that honor God. We don't get around to this pettiness stuff about, oh, what can I, do? I can do this and I can do... No, folks, you keep your focus on Jesus Christ and the kingdom and what you can do to make an impact in the world for Christ. That's where the focus needs to be. Our, our wants and our desires don't need to be king. Jesus Christ needs to be king. So it was for liberty that Christ liberated us. We should marvel at the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. And today, if you're bound in your sin, then you are in bondage. And there's only one liberator given to us, and his name is Jesus Christ. He's the only one that can save you from your sins. And my call to you today is bow your knee and bow your heart, repent of your sin and believe in Christ and trust him, and you'll be set free from sin. Why? Because he became a curse for us. In order that we might be forgiven of our sins. We should marvel at that. But don't turn your liberty into a freedom for the occasion of your flesh. Check this out. But through love, serve one another. That's how we started the sermon. Through love, serve one another. Whew, I'm tired. Alright? You're good listeners. During the invitation, let's track with this. Are you free in Christ? If you know that, you've got freedom in Jesus Christ, you ought to marvel in that freedom. Today, if you're lost in your sin, that means that you've never believed in Jesus Christ and trusted the gospel to pay for your sin debt. It means that 
you have another master, and it's not Jesus. Folks, you may think today, I don't have a master. I'm not enslaved to anyone. You are. If Jesus is not your master, then you are enslaved to sin. There's no middle ground there. But Jesus Christ can free you from the chains of sin. He can set you free. Maybe that's what you need to do this morning. Some of you say, well, pastor, I'm struggling with a liberty that's no longer a liberty to me anymore. I know it. I'm enslaved by it. I'm in bondage to it. You need to get that right today and walk away from it. Some of you may be saying, well, I've been judgmental toward a brother. And I feel like that is a liberty to him. And he honors God or she honors God with that liberty. Just like I honor God without doing it. But I've been judging that person. And I need to get my heart right today. It may be on the flip side of that. You see how difficult some of these things, the tension that we can have? Folks, if you want to damage the witness of this church and the community, then keep judging one another. That's not the way we handle it. It's not the way we do it. Paul says, stop judging one another. But through love, serve one another. There's a lot out there for the invitation. Let's respond.